1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a question. Can you fix the performance of an organisation by changing the culture? Can you take that sort of culture first lead, fixing the culture first and then trying to see if everything else will ripple from it? And how about if there's the added complication that you don't have a lot of resources to do other things aside from that? So that's the discussion today. We're going to go inside an NHS hospital in a sector that's already beset with resource shortages, a government that's refusing to settle a long running pay dispute. We're going to try and get our heads around that culture first idea last year I was really flattered to go and do a talk at Barking Havering and Redbridge University Hospitals Trust it's an NHS trust and it's fair to say that the trust has had its share of problems in the past high turnover at the top it's a reflection of the fact that the institution had challenges it had a succession of interim leaders Additionally, the job was made harder by the fact its catchment area covers suburbs that have some of the highest levels of deprivation in the country. It's just a really poor area. When the job of chief operating officer was advertised on the health service journal, they described it as the hardest job in the NHS. Now, I went in and I gave a talk about resilience. I was talking about my book, Fortitude, but I hung around afterwards because I love these opportunities to hear what people say and how they describe what it's like to work in a place like that. I spent an hour wandering around and chatting to people and I was so dazzled. I found myself going over to the Trust's CEO, Matthew Trainer to ask him an unusual question. Could I come back and record a podcast at the episode? So that's where I found myself in September last year. I made my way into the King George Hospital in Ilford. I was a little early and I was helped navigating myself by a welcoming man with a turban greeting people in reception. He wore a label indicating that he was a volunteer helper. And it turned out he'd been volunteering at the King George for 14 years. Wow. If you want to know what the NHS and free healthcare mean to communities, then wow. Wow. What an endorsement. Volunteering for 14 years. I was taken to meet the team. I wandered around. I was, I was taken around the, the whole hospital. But I'd previously visited. I was struck by a sense that there was a real will to win, even though they'd had some bad performance results and the, there were no shortage of challenges. Everyone really felt a sense of optimism that they could make the things better. Matthew Trainer said to me that he'd wanted to explore whether by creating a more engaged organisation, it could be helped to improve. He was a real optimist. He really believed that there was a route to them improving their performance. And at the heart of it, he knew everyone wanted to feel proud of where they worked. Recently, things have been difficult. Waiting times in accident and emergency were some of the longest in the country and the waiting lists were long. I found myself checking waiting times at 3 a.m. in the morning, he told me. He'd get up, go to the bathroom and find himself just logging in to see how pe- how long people had been waiting. In the distant past, one of the things that really inspired me about the idea of leadership was a TV show called Can Jerry Robinson Save the NHS? So in it, Jerry Robinson was this retired big hitter. He was the, r- the real life CEO of a major broadcaster. Who's tasked with the the problem of going into NHS hospitals and seeing if he could solve some of the bottlenecks, solve some of the challenges they were having? Whenever I chat to someone on this podcast, I always ask the question: You know, when Francis Fry or someone's on here, I say, "What did you go in and do? What did you say?" And that was what was compelling about the Jerry Robinson show because he didn't presume he had the answers; he just went in and start asking questions. And it seemed really interestingly, it seemed that the staff had all of the answers. They knew how they could make things better. They chatted to Jerry Robinson. They knew what needed solving. And more than anything, the frontline staff actually were the people who revealed the solutions to him. I've put the link in the show notes to one of the episodes of this show. I loved it. It really made me recognise that idea of servant leadership, really, this sort of egoless approach. Jerry Robinson had visited operating theatres and found that some of them were empty on a Friday. And why, he asked? Oh, he was told it was because doctors didn't want to do follow ups with patients on Saturday mornings. So that spirit of Jerry Robinson actually was what really I could see that lit up the eyes of, of the people inside uh, the, the Barking, Havering, and Redbridge Trust. There was a sense that the ideas to improve things might come from anywhere inside the organisation one consultant had told me that when he first came to London from India he'd gone to the London teaching hospitals the likes of Guy's or St Thomas's or UCLH and he said to me this consultant told me that he he said the he felt the tradition of those places didn't seem to welcome ideas and inputs from an outsider like how he considered himself but when he'd moved to the hospital in Barking Havering and Redbridge Those barriers weren't there. There was a a willingness to give things a go. The trust has a waiting list of 35,000 patients. In the past, the waiting list has struggled to be helped in the winter. Basically, unplanned operations surge in cold winter months. And they take precedent over the planned procedures, what's called elective work, that the waiting list patients represented. For the last six winters, they'd had to stop elective work because the urgent needs were just so high. So the trust had hatched an ingenious way to solve this, setting up what they call an elective surgical hub, meaning that emergencies no longer led to the cancellation of long so planned operations.
2: Winters, what has happened is we've had to stop elective work in terms of people who need elective cancers or um, even their goal-
1: Effectively, they kept them separate. Now, it's worth remembering that every person on a waiting list isn't just a number, it's a person who's often experiencing a lower quality of life or they're possibly in pain. So getting that waiting list down actually just is a really important way to try and increase net happiness. I was delighted to be taken on a tour around the hospital to meet some of the people handling help patients.
2: That's how we try to adapt. Yeah. Because your
1: activity session, to run a session goes between 23. Okay, right, so this is right into the detail of it. And so that would, in, in comparison, would be how much? Well, one radiographer probably five, six and a half. Okay, okay. Yeah. It's interesting when you break it down like that, isn't it? Included on my tour around the hospital were visits to a brand-new ultrasound machine that was enabling medical staff to perform operations without a surgeon. Right. So it's really concentrating sound hand waves that just break up. It's a bit yeah. like... Lime scale in the yeah, kidneys, yeah. and it just breaks up. So you pass it through naturally. Right. So it eliminates the need for patients. You can come in here, you know, ten to nine o'clock in the morning, and you're home. Today.
2: The beauty is, though, you do Or use,
1: uh, going in and witnessing a gallbladder removal that used a robotic device, effectively with with 3D vision to to enable a surgeon to perform. Uh, far more effectively and, and really sort of get a better outcome. What I'd really loved, and I'd heard this when I'd gone in to have those initial discussions, is the Trust had just hatched radical ways to solve their problems. They'd not only this elective surgical hub, but they'd, they'd introduced one initiative, for example, called Ton Kids. And that was about trying to perform... 100 tonsil operations in a week the the waiting list would be reduced by about 25 percent in one week of focus and they did that in a really simple way they'd call patients in they'd be calling the next patient while uh, a new patient was rolled onto the, the the operating table really interesting they were trying to systematize it to try and get better results but now i sat down with Matthew, the CEO, and tried to get a perspective of, of him and his approach. He's had quite an unorthodox career arc, he, taken in journalism along the way before he reached his present position. And he's an incredibly likeable man who, as part of his own character, is he's, he's very willing to describe his own mental health challenges, something that can't be enhanced by getting up at three in the morning and, and checking on waiting times. But he seemed really optimistic, really committed. In the discussion, I mentioned the Jerry Robinson TV show that I've just given a shout out to, and I mistakenly ascribe it to the TED Talk legend Ken Robinson. I don't think they're related, but listen out to that.
2: I'm Matthew Traynor, I'm Chief Executive of Barkin, Havering, and Redbridge University Hospitals Trust. And so you're. Is it seen in the, in the NHS as like suits and medics? Is, it, is there a separation between sort of... I think there is a sense. Yeah, I'm, I'm very much a manager. I'm a non-clinical manager. Right. So, I mean, the vast majority of managers in the NHS are clinical. And the figure that we use nationally is 19 out of every 20 managers are clinical. You know, management is direction and use of resources. So ward managers will be nurses. Clinical directors and services could be surgeons or doctors, you know. So there lots of the management is delivered from that medical context. Uh, but I'm a non-clinical manager, and there's a kind of element of operations management and senior management in the NHS that is not clinical. I adored about 15 years ago
1: a show that I suspect is a bit of like ancient history mm. in the NHS, which is Ken Robinson mm. tackles the NHS, which yeah. goes to, and you know, the, the, I was really struck in that that there was sort of these immovable objects which were consultants and surgeons and they didn't have a lot of respect with the the leadership. Now I've just gone round the hospital here and that doesn't remotely seem to be the case. One of the things Ken Robinson um, saw in his thing was that there were no operations on Friday because the Mm -hmm. consultants didn't want to do operations. But you have operations all day on Friday here. So uh, I'm just interested... If you were surveying it, what's the state of relations inside the NHS? How does, if you know, what's the insider's guide to how the NHS works, and maybe you know, with the caveat of how it might be different here?
2: Yeah, the NHS has been through, I think, probably some of the hardest times in its history in the last couple of years because we had the COVID pandemic, which. It was a hugely disruptive event for the NHS. Um, it hugely simplified for a period of time the delivery of healthcare. Because what the NHS was about for a period of time was we've got to stop people dying from COVID and then we've got to get vaccinations out to try to reduce it in the future. But what that did was it really disrupted the run in hospitals. It it broke a sort of sense of the flow within hospitals. And what's always been in hospitals, you've had the clinicians who deliver the care, um, you know, which is typically Got your medical professionals, nursing professionals and other healthcare professionals. And then you've got operations management, which is the kind of glue that holds it all together. And the role of management is to enable the clinicians to do their job better. You know? The only point in having someone like me in a hospital, and I'm not clinical, is if I can make it easier for the surgeons to operate, if I can make it easier for the nurses in frailty to provide good quality care for elderly people, You know, if we can get the right resources there. You know? So our job is look after the staff, give them the best environment to work in, get better outcomes for the patients and look after the money. I think COVID's put a lot of strain on that, I think lots of services changed quickly in ways that tactically made sense in the context of the pandemic, but the effect it had here, I think, was of throwing everything up in the air and it kind of all landed, but not quite in the right order and right shape. And I think this summer has probably been the first time since the pandemic here where we've felt as though we've started to get some services back into the right place. And, and surgery in our trust and planned care has been forging ahead and doing some great work. And you've spoken to some of those guys today and we can talk a bit more about where we are working. Medicine's had a very different experience with social care in real trouble primary care demand going through the roof. And as a result, the pressure on the front door for emergency medicine is really different. So it's been interesting within the trust seeing the really positive can-do culture in surgery where what they ask me for is more patients. You know, you go into the surgical wards and talk to the the matrons there, what can we give you more of? We want more patients because we can do more here. Medicine, they say we need more space to practice medicine. That means fewer patients and we need more support around that. So there's some really interesting country dynamics playing out just now.
1: And and, and tell me this, so... One thing that I've been really struck by is that while COVID was this horrible disruptor that has sort of knocked you out of the natural rhythm Mm. and added hundreds of thousands of extra people to waiting lists, the thing that it's really strikes me, and maybe I'm, I'm getting this wrong, is that it's been a provocation to think about how you can do things differently. Yeah. And so, you know, I just walked around the elective ward here, and that seemed like it was a response because previously you had emergency surgery and chosen planned surgery, elective surgery, it done in the same place, and actually by separating it, it meant there was there were fewer disruptions mm-hmm. from doing the, the day job by these emergencies that come along. Or another one, I'm really struck, I, I chatted to one of your uh, brilliant colleagues, Avanash it might have been, but he, he'd done this 100, tonsillectomies oh, yeah. in a week. Yeah. Was it
2: Avanash? Yeah, kids. that was yeah. the, upper, the Tunkids, upper, yeah, upper, yeah, that's right. He'd done a hundred tonsillectomies
1: yeah. in a week. And it struck me that that came from, mm. both of those things came from uh, unusual circumstances. Yeah. that prompted inventive thinking. So I'm just interested in w- whether that actually has been, you know, uh, not desirable in terms of the provocation but it, whether it's forced you to sort of reimagine and reinvent it in a way that you
2: maybe wouldn't have done so f- first things first I would not take credit for a lot of this because I wasn't at this trust during the sort of real heart of the pandemic and this is lots of this has been driven by the surgeons and the surgical leaders you've spoken to today what I've really seen though amongst them is when the pandemic hit um, what lots of people in the NHS were asked to do as the whole country was asked to do was do something different that they'd never done before and um, what that meant, actually, if you were in a, a a planned care surgical ward, was people suddenly turned around to you and said, "We need you to change the way they work because actually, there's not going to be any more tonsillectomies tomorrow. What we've got is intensive care patients who need help breathing, and um, what we've got is we've got to change our emergency pathways, we've got to change our surgical pathways, and overnight." lots of those wards had to very rapidly change the way they deliver care and their staff had to go and work in different environments at very short notice. And what I've seen particularly from the surgical side and particularly here at King George is that's given them a real confidence to try things. And, you know, we've talked a lot about quality improvement in the NHS and that kind of spirit of, you know, most quality improvements, PDSA cycles when you come down to it, whatever you dress it up in. But you talk to the surgical folk here and... I mean, in a previous job in the NHS, it took me the best part of two years to move a a, a blood service out of an area to put it into a discharge lounge, a really small discharge lounge, and it took me two years of bang my head up against the wall to make it happen. And suddenly in COVID, people are doing things overnight. And what it's done for the teams here is give them a huge confidence to try stuff. Let's try something different. If it works, we'll keep doing it. If it doesn't, we, we revert and we think again and we go again. That confidence to try to make mistakes and fail has given them these really enhanced processes, a really dynamic sense of all the different disciplines in the team pulling to r- together around it and a real sense of pride in what they can achieve. There's a couple of important elements of it. One is we've got this hub here, which is separated from the emergency pathway for surgery. So, you know, if you were run over by bus and you need emergency surgery, you come in through any in an ambulance, we have to get you into a the theater, get you operated on really quickly, you know, your appendix bursts, that kind of stuff. That's unpredictable. You need space and capacity to deal with surges and that. The planned care here, though we know who's coming in, we've got them booked them in and we build around that. And we've taken a very deliberate decision to separate that from the emergency. Because in the NHS pre-COVID, what happened every winter was you got into December, January, February, you would just fill up your surgical beds with emergency patients. And um, I used to have an anaesthetist working for me when I was working for King's in South London. And she used to send me an email sometimes on a Wednesday morning off 10 Say um, I'm going home now because you've cancelled my list for the rest of the day because you filled it with emergency patients. Okay, you're paying me, you know, best part of you know hundreds and hundreds of pounds to come and do this session. I've got no patients to right. care for, so I'm going home now. And I'm going to. Do and she used to always send me these emails, and it used to drive me mad, you know. But then you've got the ambulances queuing You're balancing the risk off here. Do you deal with the ambulance patient or do you deal with the person that needs to come in for a procedure who's been waiting six months in pain? Really difficult decisions. What we've got here now and where you've been today in that hub is protected. And we don't put emergency patients into there. Um, and we treat that as sort of sacrosanct, really. I think post-COVID that's really important because we've got now 65,000 people on waiting lists. And some of it's not urgent, but lots of it. It's people sat at home in pain, it's people unable to work. And we know from the ONS there's more people out of work now because they're waiting for operations um, than there has ever been before. You know, we've got to get these people treated. You speak to our local GPs, their clinics have got people coming in saying I'm waiting for an operation at Queen's or at King George. Do you know where I am? I'm in pain. You know, you're trying to balance off all these different requirements for health care in a way that you can do within the resources you've got recognizing you do have to make trade-offs somewhere and those trade-offs in healthcare create risk. When we first spoke, yeah. you had a an interesting comment that you said to me that was like I want to see if we
1: can improve patient outcomes by changing the culture yeah. of the organization. Yeah. Right, that's a really it's a really lofty goal and mm. but like a fabulous goal. Mm. Can we can we, as I say that, can we improve patient outcomes mm. by making this a better place to work or maybe yeah. a clearer focus on excellence or clearer focus mm. on innovation? How do you think about those things?
2: Yeah, so a culture is, you know, for me, you know, there's many different definitions of culture in an organisation, is the way we do things around here. It's, you know, one of the ones I always think is really interesting is how do people behave when no one's watching? Mm. And I think that's a good insight into the default culture of place. You know, if no one's watching you, do you tidy up, get things in order, make, make hay with that time, or do you think, no one there? Do you walk past things that are wrong? You know, Do you tolerate poor quality stuff? And in a safety-conscious industry like the NHS, I think that's really important. So I think culture, for me, the kind of how we do things around here thing is, is really important, because if you get that right, what we've got here is thousands and thousands of clinically trained staff, um, some of them incredibly technically skilled, who I think, you know, my my premise around this is if you give them the right equipment, the right levels of staffing around them and good environments to work in, that their primary driver will be to do their job to the best of the ability. And if they do their job to the best of the ability, our patient outcomes should be better. That includes how we treat our patients and how we treat each other and how we make sure there's civility in in work and there's some good work by a guy called Chris Turner who's going to speak to us next month about civility saves lives in hospitals actually and how good civil positive cultures create a psychological safety that allows people to speak up at faults and I think there was an interesting stat from, this is from I think 2001 but it showed that something like more than 90% of airline pilots were happy to be told they were making a mistake, but it was only about 55% of surgeons at that time were happy to be told they were being made a mistake by a junior. And there's lots we need to think about in terms of creating safety cultures where people can speak up confidently um, and where people can feel they'll be listened to and things will change because of that so my premise is create the right culture and the right set of behaviours within the organisation we'll empower people to speak up when things are going wrong we'll encourage people to speak up openly about the things that could make things better and do things right and that happier workforce is a workforce that will put more into the job know, you know, and you know, I know you talk a lot about joy at work I think when you speak to some of the folk you've been with today you will sense their joy in what mm. they do you'll sense the real pride they get in what they do and that sense that what they're doing is making a difference to the people that are coming into to them for care. There are other parts of our trust where you won't get that same sense of joy and pride and what you'll do is you'll find people who feel as though they're having to compromise left, right and centre on the quality of care they deliver because they're too busy, they don't have enough staff, they're working in cramped, inappropriate conditions and that for me is the stuff that, you know, that me and the other leaders in the organisation need to try to fix. And, you know, it's junior doctors are a big challenge for the NHS just now because lots of them are really unhappy. Yeah. You know, um, some of them are coming out of university with huge debts and these are some of the best and brightest people in our schools. And they're coming out with big debts and they're being paid money that doesn't allow a lot of them to live in London, you know. Um, when I was at school, I think one or two people in my school went off to be doctors and you thought, right, big house. Yeah, nice cars, foreign yeah. holidays, made up, you know. And now we've got junior doctors who are saying, I can't even live in a shared house in London, can't afford that. And they've been told, um, you've got to accept this pay settlement. They're looking at their mates on Twitter, off to Australia, et cetera, You know, And if you see some of the threads on what would improve your lot as a junior doctor, some of them are really depressing because what they say is, I'd like to get my rotas in advance so I can do things like go to a family wedding. Um, and, you know, They talk in amazement of trust they've gone to where their work pass has been ready on the first day. They talk about how impressive it is when they get paid the right amount after the first month in the shift. And these are real core elements that when you think about joy at work and pride in what you're achieving, these are all things that stop people experiencing that joy.
1: It's almost like a Maslovian hierarchy. Yeah. of. It's like a hygiene factor, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. I'm always fascinated with, um, with discussions about knowing people's shifts because it, it's mm. a big theme in retail. Yeah, like you know, the biggest thing you can do in retail is give people their shifts yeah. a month, a month ahead, two months ahead, um, or give them an app that allows them to switch their shifts yeah. without having to request permission. Like, so, and you wouldn't have thought it. It's like it's such a hygiene factor, but it's transformational. But the complexities of retail mean that it's very hard to give someone their shifts a month ahead, yeah. and so it's like this this interesting trade off. So you've said a couple of really interesting things there. You've said. That sort of hygiene factor plays a part in Mm. in mitigating the misery of their lives. You've also said that thing, which is, maybe these are distinctly separate, but that only 55% of people in operating surgery are willing to speak up to the surgeon. Mm. Now, in airlines, the way they've done that is by creating a mandatory system called crew resource management, and it's stipulating the rules of engagement so people know... They know when a sentence starts in a certain structure that this is going to be a, a deliberately constructed yeah. way to raise a concern yeah. about... Excuse me, Sarah, but I think... Exactly. That, yeah, I yeah. Think, and if we don't recognise the consequences this, yeah. I think the outcome could be this. Mm-hmm. And, but everyone recognised this is this structured way to do it. And it's a transformation for the airline industry. So those two factors there, mm. the hygiene of, of things actually creating storm clouds in people's lives and systematising psychological safety. They're two very different things. Mm. But how would you set about solving them from a management
2: Yeah, point? so I'm not sure they're that different um, in some respects. So on the, the surgeons one, I think, I think that study, so i say that was 2001. It may have improved considerably by then. Um, and certainly you would, I mean, you, you've seen today, Dick Mukherjee is one of our brilliant surgeons taking out someone's gallbladder. Dip is our trust lead for patient safety. And he is one of the very first people who spends his time going around. Services Encouraging people to speak up when they see mistakes. And, right. you know, we've, we've got some folk here, we've got a really good culture of that. But a couple of things about the, the airline comparisons are interesting. The nuclear industry is another comparison we get. And I used to work with a guy called James Titcombe, who's done some fantastic work nationally about safety. And he, he said when he worked for British Nuclear Fuel, there was a, a kind of um, award of the month for someone who'd called out a safety fault. He used an example of a guy who dropped a spanner off a scaffolding and it burst a pipe. He immediately went and told management and he got, um, he got a bonus for that, because you know, it's a positive safety culture. Yeah, and the NHS has got quite a long way to go in that. And I think we are in a framework at the minute where there's been problems in the NHS around quality, around safety. The Francis report into Stafford, which was my local hospital when I grew up. You know, I got stitches in my head there from Stafford Hospital and you know other things like that. But there was the Francis report there. Lots of that was about culture and psychological safety. And we've just recently, of course, had the cases in Chester and the conviction of Lucy Letby, where, again, there's been conversations about psychological safety to speak up. And it's so important in a healthcare context that people can do that. Um, part of the, I think, the fear factor that comes into this is that sometimes, actually, people feel as though when they own up to mistakes, they'll be blamed. And we have got into a situation where I think there are there is a worry about your liability when things go wrong and um, the outcomes from coroner's cases, the outcomes from inquiries, where we're always looking for someone to say, you made a mistake. And I think healthcare is is people who are fallible, caring for people who who are vulnerable. And I think there are different categories of mistake there. There's just the things that go wrong. Um, And I think that's the old, what is it, coach, console, punish framework. You Mm. know, you coach people when they make mistakes they could have avoided. You console people when something just happens and it wasn't avoidable. But when someone willfully and maliciously does something wrong, then you punish. And right. I think in healthcare, we've sometimes not always got the balance from that. Right. There's always a hunt for a scapegoat. And I think what that does is it disincentivizes people from saying, do you know what, I've got this wrong, I've made a mistake, I think I've caused harm. And we have pockets of great practice around that. But I think the service as a whole at the minute, you do get a feeling in places that people are treading around on hooks. Hoping they can get through things without things going too wrong. And,
1: right, so yeah, that and surgery but, I just watched there, so so, a, a yeah. very accomplished surgeon doing yeah, it. Brilliant. But you know, the thing that really struck me, I'm looking at these 3D yeah, visualization, yeah. like, extraordinary. I'm watching him sort of cauterise, the cuts as he goes. Amazing. But if if he made a mistake in that, is I yeah. all I was aware of is oh my goodness, like yeah. the, the, the precision that's required here, that there is with a less accomplished surgeon or with anyone actually, someone could make a mistake. So in that instance, that isn't about punish. No, that's, that's
2: predominantly console. Console. Console, because when, when you are operating in those kinds of spaces within someone's body, with the equipment you're using and that sort of magnification, you make a mistake, you can, cons- you know. That, well, there, there's a mistake that could be addressed through training and then there's you do something that you've done a 100 times before and 101st time it goes wrong. Okay. You can't eliminate that kind of error, you know, and I, th- I think so. In one, that instance, yeah. the, the the trust would have that surgeon's back. Yeah, oh, we absolutely should. And th- those guys would tell you, and the, the you know guys and women that work here, they would tell you whether they felt as though we had their back for those kinds right. of things. I hope I hope they would say that we did. The thing is that they're also regulated professionally. There's always the risk of GMC referrals, which strike the fear of God in the doctors. You hear nurses talking about their PIN numbers and so on when they feel as though they've been doing something that carries a degree of risk. And I think one of the critical differences between an airline, for example, and a hospital is, and I've had had clinicians say this to my face, uh, you you talk about airline safety, but if you had a plane on the runway at Heathrow and you said, uh, actually, we're missing half the staff and we've got twice as many pay uh, twice as many passengers on. It wouldn't take off. Right. Never take off. And yet we run emergency departments that will be right fifty percent over capacity with staff off sick. And that creates a different safety culture. And there is a different safety culture flying a plane, which is predominantly mechanical, although it's human factors that always cause plane crashes, isn't it, as you, you know, yeah. as we yeah. know from reading this stuff. Here, there's far more human factors and less mechanics around it. So that, the reason I connect that to the other hygiene factors is these are all, I think, part of a continuum. If you come into a workplace and you get your shifts in advance and your pass is ready and you get paid properly and you can park your car and you've got a nice break room and then you go in to do something really difficult that you've been trained to do, I think these are part of a continuum where people feel as though the organisation values them and feels as though it's created the right environment for challenge. And I think a training doctor who's had that positive experience of the organisation and they've joined us in a good way and heard that we value them and heard what our values are and what matters to us, I think that's someone who in in an environment might be more prepared to speak up about stuff. So I think these are different elements of culture. But I think they contribute, and I think if you let down the side on some of the basic hygiene factors, you put a little bit more toxicity into the water around calling out the big things, because I think there might be an inclination to say, do you know what, if, if I'm sitting in a dark room with broken chairs and the computer log on that doesn't work, why should I expect them to care when I say in an operating theatre I'm concerned about the proceeds or processes we're following here?
1: Can I ask about sort of the, the impact of... Um, pride on people's own identity. Yeah. When you took over the trust, or like, you no. know, historically, you told me a thing, the trust has had a bumpy
2: time. Yeah, I've, I first came to this trust in 2012 um, when I worked for the Care Quality Commission who inspect hospitals. Um, and I came into the office, which is now my office, to talk to the chief executive at the time about warning notices that we were issuing. Them. And those warning notices were about long waits in the emergency department and concerns about safety in the maternity department. And from that point onwards, I was kind of aware of BHRET. Um, you know, and the place has always had a, a reputation as being a tough place to work. And you know, as we say, we advertise the chief operating officer job. The editor of the Health Services Journal tweeted it saying, probably the toughest job in the NHS, actually. And um, an interest in the first two or three Why times. would they say that? Because a cu- couple of things. One, the context around here, um, we've got um, a population with some of the highest levels of deprivation in London. We've got some of the lowest numbers of general practitioners in London. They work very hard, our GPs, but if you're somewhere like Hackney, which has got a brilliant hospital, the Homerton, I think in Hackney, there's about 95, 96 over sixty-fives per GP. In in one of our local boroughs, it's about 350 plus over 65 right. per GP. So lots of the demand falls into the acute hospital. We've got a lot of care homes around here as well because it's out of London, it's cheaper, so you've got a lot more people in care homes being brought in through ambulances. So it's in a tough environment. Um, it's historically probably not had the right level of investment as well. And outer of London um, has tended sometimes to struggle for investment compared to the inner London where you've got the bigger, you know, some brilliant teaching hospitals in London, but there's always a sense that that's created a bit of a pull towards inner London. If you're um, a clinician living out here, you can jump on the train and go and work in a London teaching hospital if you want to. So there, there's a there's a kind of donut because my mother. Previous acute hospital role was in in Bromley in South East London, and we had people who lived locally, and I'd see them heading off to get the train in to work at Guys in St Thomas's and Denmark Hill and other places as well. So you got to work hard to attract folk to work here, particularly when it's a bar's market for employees, which it is just now. And also we're very busy, you know. And um, you know, Queens can get north of 100 ambulances a day. Um, King George here gets very high numbers of patients with mental ill health coming in through the emergency department. You know, they're two really, really busy EDs. So it creates a tough context and the measures you're, you're measured on. Money, um, it's got deficit problems, has had for years. a performance, really clear thing. And staff survey, we don't do well on any of them. So that's the context you're coming into. Basically, it's a place that's had a lot of interim chief execs as well over the years just because it's been um, sometimes difficult to get people into the permanent role for the right reason, and all that creates a a tough old gig.
1: And uh, what struck me, though, is that there's a sense amongst a lot of the the staff I've met where they think like, okay, well, we're trying to do things differently here. We're trying to have an impact here, but the the hundreds tonsillectomies in a weekend... Uh, I was really interested to hear like the genesis of that of someone who was an and i think he was a, a, a uh, an employee who'd come from overseas yeah. and he'd gone to the london teaching hospitals yeah. correct me if i 've got anything this wrong he got to the London teaching hospitals and because they're sort of establishment and they're you know the sort of traditional, they weren't necessarily open-minded to an outsider coming in with suggestions. Mm. Is that right? Tell me me what really happened there.
2: So I I don't know the hard details of that one, so I'll I'll start separately for that. We have here one of the highest numbers of overseas doctors um, in London, I think probably in the UK actually. We've got a lot of people who've come from overseas to work here. I mean, our chief medical officer trained in India and came here, and lots of people you've worked, you've, you've, we've walked around with today are, are from overseas as well. And I think some of them have had different experiences of working in teaching hospitals. Some have had a great time there, but some of them have also, I think, found it hard to become established because they have felt that like they've got an outsider status. And when you talk to quite a lot of our, our staff, they'll, they'll talk about feeling at home here in a way that they haven't felt in other hospitals um, and I should say, for all the tough performance challenges we've got here, I love working here. Um, and the reason I love working here is the people that you work with. Um, you know, it's. The, the hospitals are not easy places to work. Queen's, in particular, at times can be a really difficult environment to work in because it is so busy. But when you ask people why they stay, why they come back here after they've trained and gone anywhere else, they said it gets in your blood and it gets in your bloodstream. And some of that, I think, is for some people it's a kind of outsider sense. And, you know, we've got, for example, more than 800 um, staff from the Philippines working here. And when I talk to some of those people who've been here more than 25 years, they talk about the fact that if you come here from the Philippines, there's a great community here. People will make you welcome. They'll help you navigate life in England and London. You know, there's a really strong sense of belonging. We've got lots of staff from India, you know, from other parts of the world, and that creates a sense of belonging. Um, Along with all of our local staff, lots of whom live locally, work locally, they've had children here, their parents helped build the hospital, that kind of story. You know, and that stuff ties people together. And that's really positive. The other thing, though, and um, I talked to two consultants who joined us recently who'd come back here, having trained here, gone elsewhere, and then they heard good things about some of the stuff we were doing here, and they'd come back to work here, and they told, told us this in the last consultant's induction. They said, if you really want to make a difference in clinical practice, you want to go where the need's greatest. And one of the attractions that come in here is they felt as though, actually, if you really want to make a difference, you go where there's more people with more problems than anywhere else, actually. And I think we attract a certain type of person. It's never going to be an easy gig, you know, but if you don't mind hard work, if you find teams where the team culture is something that you enjoy and where you really want to get stuck into making a difference, you can do it here. What is the culture here? So that's an interesting question, isn't it? Because there's no... And I don't think there are single cultures within organisations like this. Um, And I think there are very... I could take you around four or five different parts of this organisation and you'd see very, very different cultures, actually. So I think part of my job... And I, I've talked about trying to change the culture here. I, I, Chief exec's role, first, set direction for the organisation. Be really clear about the objectives that you're, you're, you want to achieve. Next thing then, and I spent a lot of time doing that, is build the right senior team around you. And they have to be really good at their job. And my, part of my role is to give them really clear focus. And if you go on our intranet, you'll see me and each of the execs has got two objectives for the year. Mine is improve flow, make the place a better place to work. You know, um, if you look at my chief nurse, it's improve um, the patient experience outcomes and spend less money on high-cost agency nurses, chief people officer, it's complete our restructure, um, you know, and improve our recruitment and retention, but no more than two objectives each, because otherwise you can find 101 things to do in a hospital. So, set direction, get a great team together and give them really clear objectives. Then the next bit for me is to really focus on the expected behaviors and, I think, there's, I think culture and behaviours and all these things is a really interesting mix of stuff. I don't think you can change people's deep-held values about how, what they think about the world and how they should, how they, you know, what matters to them, what's important to them. I think some people have got prejudices that are quite difficult to deal with in, in the modern workplace. Um, you know, I wrote a letter to all of our staff about sexism and how we deal with women in the organisation last year and just we, we won't tolerate sexist behaviour because I'd had a number of women approach me to talk about the way they'd been treated by male colleagues here I think what you can do is set behaviours and set tones so this is what we're here to do these are the things that matter this is how we're going to do it And behaviours are are something you can work against in a way that, you know, if you say this is our culture and someone behaves slightly inappropriately, you can say, well, that's not really in line with our culture. That's quite a grey conversation Mm -hmm. to have. If we say this is how we expect our staff to behave and you haven't behaved in that way, that's a much easier way to try and create. What you're trying to do is create a framework that encourages a certain culture. Rather than define, you know, you want to define a culture, and we we hear all this stuff these days, and it gets mocked a bit this these days. And when you talk about be kind and you know treat each other with dignity and respect, so you hear it from everyone. But actually, what are the behaviours that create that positive culture is really important, right. I think. So, so for me, set direction, get the right people, s- establish the behaviours that will do that positive culture. And the last bit for me is to be able to lead with optimism. Um, I think cynicism in leaders is the worst single trait. Um, uh, there's a great uh, psychiatrist Dr Derek Tracy um, who used to work with me in in an old trust and he sent me a brilliant paper about cynicism once and actually one of the ways to impress people you don't know is to be cynical because people naturally flock to a cynic because they're worried that the cynic knows something that they don't know and so, if you you know, if you and I went into a room with ten other folk, and we didn't know any of them, and we were talking about a plan of action, and I said this will never gonna, never going to happen. Never. What you don't want to do is challenge that and be exposed to be wrong in front of right. her, because we're right. social creatures. You don't want to be exposed as wrong. So cynicism is a is a kind of cheap way to to establish yourself as knowledgeable, but it's also incredibly destructive. Because if I'm cynical to my staff about what we can achieve, I give them permission to be cynical. So so those things together for me the strong team, the, the behaviours, and a bit of optimism about what we can achieve and a reflection of the great stuff we do. I guess I've probably gone right in a journey with that where if you'd asked me about this a few years ago, I'd talk really strongly about defining the culture first. Now I think you do need to define the kind of culture you want to have, but you construct it through the behaviours that you right. expect of people around it.
1: And, and I'm interested to know how you think that you're on track with that, because you, yeah. s- you mentioned something to me, which was... Almost like the the toxicity of numbers mm. um, is the way I took it to be like you know if you've got someone and all they're focused on is getting waiting lists down yeah. or getting numbers 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 mm. then it probably has unintended consequences yeah. you know the old thing that I regularly quote is Goodwin's Goodhart's law which is that any measure that becomes a target ceases to be a good measure yeah. there's, there's some truth in that right yeah it's, and, and I just wonder how you the whole of the NHS is obsessed with numbers and waiting lists and waiting times and how do you pay respect to that Mm -hmm. the external measure and make sure that everyone feels that their work is respected the quality of their work
2: is respected It's, it's interesting there's lots of different numbers in the NHS one of them is about money and that's a huge driver at the minute of concern because you know we are running some really big deficits and that, and that does influence your behaviour because it does guide how you're able to make decisions about staff and resourcing, and investing in new services. And that's part of the role of management is to try to work with clinicians to do that kind of stuff. And that is a source sometimes of the us and them stuff, you know, where you get managers come into a room saying we've got to reduce the amount we spend on staff and you've got clinical staff who are working really hard in that context. That's a point mm. of tension. But more broadly, I think... I think there's a really strong challenge for the NHS to get better about using numbers in a way that reflect good quality clinical outcomes rather than just the units of stuff we can count. So I could probably reel off for you quite a bit of chapter and verse on who's on our waiting list, um, how many 52-week waiters we've got, um, you know, how many have I been added on since the strike started this year. What I don't have to hand is to talk to you about the quality outcomes that we get from certain types of procedures. And how, you know, we used to do these patient-reported outcome measures for knee and hip surgery, and I think that was stopped pre-pandemic and hasn't started again. Some of the metrics we use, I think, are about have we done enough units of the thing rather than has the thing we've done produced a better outcome for the patient? Yeah. And I think within specialties and services, you've got more of that nuance, but at trust level, sometimes that's a bit hidden. And the other thing is where we've tried to introduce proxy measures for really quite messy and complicated systems. So, you know, the four-hour A&E target it used to be 95%, now we're trying to get 76%. Um, you know, when I got here, we were the worst in the country, very much nailed to the bottom for our um, majors A&E performance, and we've just moved out of the bottom 10% in the last couple of months, and we're trying to sort of claw our way up that, really, but still got lots of people waiting far too long in our emergency departments. But that four-hour target is weirdly quite a good proxy for a lot of other things, because if you do come in under for in- you chest pain or you know sore arms or like whatever, fever, That four hours tells you broadly, have we been able to get the right resources to people who've come in sick and have we been able to see, treat, or discharge them within that time or transfer them into a ward? And that's quite a good proxy for quality, I think, because a hospital that's delivering well on the four-hour target usually has a relatively clear A&E. You can get people off ambulances, get them seen by the right specialties, either get them home or get them into the right beds. And that, I think, has got a nice... Link with good quality patient experience and care without necessarily going down to that granular level. So, I I think at the NHS we're good on data, Um, I think we're not as good as we should be on analytics. And we're sometimes so awash with information that I could probably pull out any kind of stats to prove an argument in some respects. And you know, it's interesting, you know, so we've increased the number of people going to our Freedom to Speak Up Guardian and um, when I was working at CQC I'd speak to trusts who said we've got more people raising concerns and that's a really good thing because it shows we've got a more transparent culture and I'd go somewhere else and said we've got fewer people raising concerns which is a really good thing right. because there's less to be concerned about Right? And you think right where do we go right. that? You that know. you, you can see the argument for both can't yeah. you can and they, can, you know, they may both be true but in different contexts be yeah, yeah. telling an entirely different story and that's part of the management job is yeah. trying to cut through that stuff isn't it yeah. It's really striking how focused and
1: motivated and professional everyone is. It's really impressive for that. But you said one of your jobs is to make it a better place to work. Yeah. And and obviously you've got some long-term strategic things about that. But are there any short-term things that you've thought,
2: actually, it's just had an impact on morale to do this? Yeah, we we had a great um, staff um, thank you event in the summer. And we got more than five and a half thousand of our staff over three or four days came to you know. I've worked in places before where we've had award ceremonies and I didn't feel at the minute, especially with some of our performance being nowhere near he'd want it to be, I didn't think a sort of black tie in you know, the yeah. team of the year kind of thing was right. Although we, we may go back to that at some point. But what we did and our chief nurse, Catherine, and our, and our team were in, you know, did a brilliant job putting this on. Uh, We had a staff lunch, we had an evening do, um, I play keyboards in the band and we we knocked out some songs and got people up on stage singing with us. On the Saturday we had a family fun day where people could bring their families along. That was really important because for some of our staff all the rides were free, the ice cream, it only cost us 12 quid a head across the whole thing. Because we had so many people at it and we got some really good deals from suppliers and so on. But talking to some of those parents, they said this is this is the big thing we're taking our kids to this summer because if you take two or three kids along to a fair these days, you can spend 70, 80 quid on Mm -hmm. ice creams and rides and things like that. And the fact we were able to do something for some of our staff that they wouldn't otherwise be able to do just to say thank you, the buzz over those days was lovely. You know, people were really happy really positive about it and that was a, a less tangible but great thing I think for organisational culture which we'll have to remind people of at the staff survey sort of time because there's lots of other things. And leadership thanking people is one thing. Yeah. Is, is there any way to sort of, I'd have thought patients thanking people is like Yeah it's... we get some lovely stuff in from patients I mean because I get the complaints and I get some terrible emails about um, people who've had awful experiences mm. with us that just aren't acceptable you know and I spend quite a lot of time saying sorry for, for those things and Speaking to people about some really quite distressing things, and it does happen in healthcare where we get things wrong. I also get some lovely emails from people. You know, beautiful one I got a couple of months ago from someone whose um, whose mother had died in the hospital, and just wanted to say what a wonderful experience it had been in terms of how the palliative care team had dealt with the family how their mum had been really frightened about coming in and she was f- frightened about the pain she'd experienced and so on but the staff had been so thoughtful and attentive and, and it was a really beautiful reflection on a really sad moment at the end of this woman's very long life and how well it had been handled But and I think a lot of the thanks goes direct to the staff I think they get chocolates, yeah. they get flowers they get thank you cards um, I think the vast majority of folk who go through the NHS and I think it's something like 1.6 million people a day, I think most of them on the whole they're probably pretty happy with what they get um, but we do need to address the stuff that doesn't go well and I think, though, really, for me, you know, going back to your point about the, the stuff that is working, I think some of it is about seeing more staff with the kind of pride you've experienced today. You know, I'd, I'd like the kind of pride that you've heard from some of the surgical teams today. I'd like more people who are working in the kind of really hard areas of medicine and emergency medicine to feel that about what they're doing, because mm-hmm. I don't think they, they do at the minute. I'd like more of our junior doctors and our training doctors to feel as though they're having a really good experience mm-hmm. here um, and that they're learning the right things when they come here and that they want to commit to the NHS. And... Um, I'd like some of our non-white staff um, to feel that like there's more fairness and progression within the organisation. And we had, we had a moment yesterday, we had our, an exec team yesterday, and I've, I've, I've made a lot of changes to the exec team and to our structures, and we've got four more clinicians now working in leadership roles. Even a year ago, our exec team was largely the sort of senior execs talking to each other, and everyone else there was silent. Uh, or they contribute things, one or two of them who were pretty confident about raising concerns. Yesterday... I'd say probably three quarters of the conversation was led by the clinicians and the ops people in the teams. And that felt like a sea change. A few people commented yesterday. We've been building up to that. Part of it, I think, was getting people face-to-face. I know you're really interested in in hybrid. I think some of this has been about us being quite specific now that certain sessions should happen in the same room. Mm. You know, you're with people, you read their body language, you make the informal context around that. And we're trying to get back to learning how to get that. But that felt, to me like something that gives me optimism about the next 18 months to two years one of the things that i
1: guess is the other side of that is that i chatted to one of your colleagues and they said look when you've got this number of practitioners in a high stress environment the one thing that you have to be aware of is that by the order of probability there might be people who staff are in a bad place and the very nature of actually extrapolating the circumstances that staff are contemplating you know it sort of actions against themselves, right. like you know. There, um, and uh, I was really interested in the thoughtful way that your colleague was talking about that. Was like, okay, if you even mention suicide, mm. the everyone will come up. No one wants to attend suicide mm. awareness, and and so his suggestion was, okay, all you need to do in that case is in a high stress environment to say to people. What? What's your next step? What's your plan? Who do you phone when things get too much? Mm. I wonder if you could just talk through how you think about doing that and, and how that sort of thinking came about.
2: Yeah, there's, there's it's, it does worry me. And I think last winter, particularly January, February, etc., I was really concerned about the state of mind of some of our staff who were coming into particularly really distressing emergency department environments day in, day out, you know. So what you've got in surgery is people doing really technical, complicated, sometimes 12, 14-hour procedures, huge degree of concentration with very small margins for error. Elsewhere, you've got people working in really intense, crowded environments with angry, distressed patients. You know, the amount of abuse and violence and aggression our staff are experiencing has gone through the roof. Um, you know we were talking this week about Tesco's introducing body cameras for staff Mm. and saying do we need to do the same in some of our areas now because we're getting so much grief for that and you do worry because people take it home with them and and last January I was having a couple you know I went through a couple of weeks where I felt unable to switch off and you're getting up and checking your phone at 3 and 4 in the morning to see how many people are in the ED and that kind of thing and you feel that worry and you worry about the staff and The key thing for me is for people to not feel as though they shouldn't talk about it, but not to compel people to talk about it if they don't want to. And there's a a wonderful um, psychiatrist, Dr. Alice Cole-King, who's a a leading expert in in addressing risk of suicide in organisations. And some of the work her and her team do is not about talking about suicide risks, it's talking about safety plans. And exactly as you said, um, what she looks at is not going into a room and saying, right, let's have a conversation about whether you're feeling suicidal what she goes in and says right what are you like what are the behaviours that you start to notice in yourself when you're not well and not coping well with the structures the, the stress and strains at work and then what might you do in that circumstance to make things better? Who might you talk to? And just that fact of having a plan is sometimes what people need. And There's some really good work. Another, I'm sort of dropping names in this. There's a guy called Neil Greenberg as well, who's a psychiatrist. who's done a lot of work with the military. And they looked a lot at debriefs and all this kind of thing. And there's actually some really interesting evidence around this that single debriefs after really distressing events are sometimes not that good. You know, you sometimes need quite a structured approach or nothing at all. To really help people get through it and actually most people will deal with traumatic circumstances through their own strength. Um, For lots of people actually all they want is a bit of time and space, they just want a quiet room to go and sit in, they don't want someone to come in and talk to them, for others they will need that structured approach so I I think it's about a menu of options. We do a lot of work with our local um, mental health trust, North East London Foundation Trust, we've got a great occupational health team with a really good psychology offer, but it does worry me. I mean, I've, I, was, um, I was diagnosed with um, a type of bipolar disorder about 15 years ago, um, cyclothymia, which is, uh, I think, type 2 bipolar or something, um, often described as mild, although it doesn't feel it at times. And um, so I had two um, long periods of cognitive behavioural therapy, um, and that was all about dealing with catastrophisation and thoughts. And you know, I've given up drinking, I don't, uh, and I, I run a lot. You know, I do a lot of stuff to try to look after my own mental health. health. And sometimes, you know, you just, you're, you know, you think about your staff and you think about what more can you do to create an environment where they can talk about this stuff. And Yeah, it's hard, but it's, it's great to hear people talking about that stuff mm. with a bit more awareness. There's still a lot of stigma around it, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Especially in some of the more macho environments and sometimes healthcare can be a little bit, you know, one, one person once described um, management in the NHS as they go in in the morning looking for a fire and if they can't find one, they'll start one in the bin so they've got something to deal with. And and I think that's the problem sometimes is we get very focused on crisis management and we don't spend enough time thinking about the longer term changes we can make to make these more satisfying jobs. Because, you know, what a great sense of purpose. You know, what what are you coming into work to do today? You're coming in to do a job where if you get it right, someone's life will be better and they might be in distress, they might be in pain, They might be in fear, and it might be about um, putting that right. It might be about a woman who's going to have a baby and all the incredible um, things that happen around that time. It might be someone who's at the end of their life, and where actually a good end to their life can be such a profound thing for a family. You know, there's all these amazing things our staff do day in, day out. And actually, the NHS, whether you're someone like me who's in a support role to help these clinicians do these things or whether you're one of the clinicians doing these things, it should be the best place in the world to work. And sometimes it is, but quite often it isn't enough, and the reasons it isn't aren't to do with the clinical care, they're to do with culture, yeah. they're to do with resources, and actually that is the challenge for people in my kind of job.
0: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
1: Thank you to Matthew. In the show notes, I've included a link to Matthew's latest CEO report, which highlighted the trust ended 2023 as the most improved emergency care department in England. Now, as with everywhere in the NHS, the performance has still got some way to go and the results certainly aren't as strong as the the whole hospital trust would want. Effectively, the whole organisation and the whole institution is woefully underfunded by the Conservative government. But I'm massively inspired by... What this group of people are set out to try to do, they're filled with optimism to believe that they can make things better for patients by thinking about things in a different way. It's inspired me to think about things, and I'd love to hear from you, actually. So if you've made it this far, I'd love to give you the opportunity to get in touch. I want to think about other organisations and and how they're tackling questions like this. One of the questions I get asked all the time if I'm speaking somewhere is people say... What company cultures do you admire? What what have you been impressed with? And what I want to do is give a platform to great company cultures. In the show notes is a form. If you think your company culture is special and you can articulate why and the actions you take, I want to see if there's scope to highlight your firm. I'm expecting a lot of incoming PR on this, so I, I do want to hold a high bar of proof. But if you're interested, go and check out the form and think about whether you could make uh, an interesting example of this too thank you to everyone I met from the volunteers to the surgeons to the consultants to the nurses at BHRUT I was really inspired by the whole organization and and uh, it was it was great to give a platform to what you're trying to do there I've been Bruce Daisley if you like this do check out previous episodes I'll see you next time